Hi everyone, my name is Miles Surratt and I serve as the Associate Director of Campus Activities and Events at Clemson University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is Jody Walker. Jody is a freelance entertainment writer based in New York City. Jody currently does most of her work for EW and New York Magazine's culture website, Vulture, but she's also written for Billboard, MTV, and Bustle. Jody is a graduate of Furman University. Welcome, Jody. Hey, Miles. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course course. Uh, well, let's get started with a little segment we have called Getting to Know Jody. It's not called that every time, but it is this time. Uh, and this uh, segment is designed to help listeners understand Jody as a person and a professional. Jody, are you ready? I am ready to be professional. Okay, great. So, uh, well, you may not know this, but uh, student affairs is a world where people really want to know uh, people's story and where they came from. So, Jody, how did you get involved in entertainment writing? Um, well, you were there for a lot of it. When we were living in D.C. at the same time, uh, I had just finished teaching English in Prague in the Czech Republic, and I came back pretty uncertain of what I wanted to do. So I got a job with a nonprofit in D.C., um, which I enjoyed but was not exactly fulfilling my life passion. And I started reading a lot of things. Um, mostly on websites that I enjoyed. One of our beloved was Grantland um, that I kind of felt like I could write and I had always enjoyed writing. I've always loved TV. Um, and so I started a blog uh, and writing, you know, mostly for my friends, writing about TV and movies and music and pop culture. And uh, it certainly was not a blog that went viral or anything, um, but I saw at the same time as I was writing this blog um, an advertisement for an internship with Entertainment Weekly that was paid, which was exciting, and um, I applied for it. You were supposed to have you know, five published pieces, and I had never published anything in my life. I hadn't written for the school newspaper, but I had this blog, so I submitted you know, my favorite articles from it and went through the interview process and I got that uh, very coveted internship with EW. Um, so I moved to New York two weeks after that, uh, after I got the job to start the internship and um, it was incredible. Like one of the most, um, one of the times I've learned the most in my life was at that like five or six month internship. And then from that, I stayed in New York and started freelancing full time and have been doing that, have been freelancing full-time ever since. So I work from home and, uh, and get to write for a lot of different places and have been writing a lot for Entertainment Weekly ever since I worked for them, but get to write for other places too and work from home, which I love. Mm, cool. <laughs> uh, and I probably should have said this in the, in the introduction. Jody and I went to college together, so we are uh, friends uh, in real life in addition to uh, collaborating here to talk about leadership and, and pop culture. Um, That's right. Yeah, that is correct. Well, there's some debate about whether we are friends. Jody. Well, I was wondering if I should mention that Miles did once tell me that in college we were more acquaintances than friends, but luckily our acquaintanceship has grown into a podcast-style friendship. Uh, yes, yeah, that's, that's true. That is true. That did... Uh, that did happen. I I stand by my point. Uh, I think it's probably the only thing I've ever said that's really upset Jody. Uh, it's hurtful every time you stand by it. <laughs> well, you know, it is what it is. All right, Jody. So you grew up primarily in Waco, Texas. 
what can you tell us about the origin of Fixer Upper HGTV's hit show? Oh, man. It is a weird time to be from Waco, Texas. Um, the origins that I can tell you about are that um, Chip and Joanna lived across the street from my parents uh, when I was in college. So not when I was – but it was across from my childhood home, but uh, not while I lived there. And um, Magnolia, her uh, original Magnolia store, um, before it was a giant sprawling compound, uh, was – just a little ways down the neighborhood. And um, I mostly knew of Joanna when that show started from being on her dad's auto body commercials, uh, which in a sea of terrible local commercials in Waco, Texas, some of the worst I've ever seen, hers were not so terrible, perfectly pleasant. Um, but, yeah, it's been really, really crazy to see especially for me when I tell people I'm from Waco, Texas, that used to get a very different response um, than it does now that, H that HGTV has made it such a hot happening spot. Now people tell me they're going there for their spring break. Um, they've already been. They loved it. Waco's a big hit. Someone told you that they went to Waco for spring break? Yes. Like, it's like, it's usually like teachers, like people who have spring breaks. Yeah. I mean, people go visit. They make pilgrimages. Not, not people wow. who are just going to be in Texas already and they're like, why don't we swing? To people go to Waco. Has it and ever when been I visited for my high school 10-year reunion, I did a small amount of journalism uh, while, I was, while I was at the Magnolia, um, the silos, which, by the way, are also across the street from my childhood church where my dad was the pastor um, for most of my childhood. And he was just saying the other day that he tried for basically the whole time that he was the pastor there to get those silos ripped down because uh, they were real mm -hmm. eyesore. So yeah. thank goodness he did not succeed. Wow. Um, but I, when I went there, they told me that about, I asked some of the, the uh, workers there and they said that like on a down day, Five to seven thousand people, like on their smallest day, five to seven thousand people go through Magno the Magnolia silos a day, and on an up day, it's like nine to ten thousand. That is in Waco, uh, Texas. That is impressive. I bet the I bet the Property Brothers don't have anything going on like that. Take that, Vancouver. <laughs> Are they from? Aren't, oh, they're from Vancouver. They live in Las Vegas. I don't. I they do all their stuff in Canada. I think. I don't know. I don't ah. watch that show. I find them to be America. Well, I guess uh, North America's most boring people. So uh, there is a void in their eyes. Has it ever been? Has there ever been a normal time to be from Waco? Because presumably before Chip and Joanna took over the mantle, it was mainly Branch Davidian Association. I assume, right? Yes, mainly. My family moved there three days after uh, the Branch Davidian situation. Um, and mm -hmm. then we moved away basically right before uh, the Fixer Upper started on HGTV. So if there was ever a normal time to live there, I guess it was when we did. But it was pretty, pretty compounded by those two things. Hmm. What a normal Waco. What a normal Waco life. Uh, well, speaking of your family, uh, you do have some strong connections to, to higher education. Your dad works in higher ed. What sort of, uh, what sort of role does he hold at Mercer University? Um, so when my dad retired from the pastorate, my parents moved from Waco to 
Macon, Georgia, or my dad to start um, what's called the Institute of Life Purpose at Mercer. Um, and with that, he helps students um, discover their emerge, what he calls emerging life dreams, which is um, what he did his uh, doctorate in, in adult education, and um, helps them apply those dreams and goals occupationally after they graduate, um, most often involving international travel with that. So he um, helps, helps kids kind of uh, explore their life dreams and then sends them abroad to do so. And then also um, my mom has been in higher ed uh, for my whole life working with international students and study abroad programs at first at Baylor University and then at Mercer University. So I might not be a higher ed expert, but I have been around it for most of my life. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even know that about your mom. See, it's, yes. uh, it's that deep acquaintanceship that we have that's really, uh, really held me back. From <laughs> Maybe one day we'll be friends. All right. Jody, if you could write about any pop culture phenomenon ever, what would you choose? Oh, well, Miles, you know this is really opening a door for me because it, it changes every day what I'm most excited and interested in writing about, but I also have a tendency to get um, kind of obsessed with things for a few months at a time. And right now, it's not necessarily entertainment involved, but it is definitely in popular culture. Um, I'm very obsessed with knowing as much as I possibly can about multi-level marketing organizations, um, <laughs> which is to say things like uh, essential oils and Rodan and Fields and for the older school, like Mary Kay. Um, I and just there was just an incredible article in the New Yorker about uh, Young Living essential oils and how those have kind of risen to power. And I mean, talk about a study in leadership. Multi-level marketing is that is one. So that is what I am very very interested in writing about in some capacity right now. A highlight from that. Uh... A highlight from that New Yorker article uh, that I really loved about uh, about essential oils was uh, talking about attending a convention, and the author said, yeah. "I've never sneezed so much, and I've never been blessed so thoroughly for sneezing in my entire life." Well, are real. As you were saying that, I was pulling up a note on my phone where I had copy and pasted that down as my favorite quote from that article. Well, so there. good. It's that it's that uh it's that connection that we have for many years of being acquaintances. <laughs> inexplicable acquaintanceship connection. <laughs> All right. So, Jody, we ask this question in every podcast. What book most makes you think about leadership? Well, this is the question where I really felt like I was out of my element and gonna be a real um stain on your lovely leadership podcast because I just couldn't think of any books that make me think about leadership. I was thinking about why that is, and I think it's because I used to think about leadership a lot. Uh, like as a, as a child, I think people, you know, would tell me I was a good leader, so I would strive to be a good leader. And then in, like, high school and college, I was, you know, and as an acquaintance you could vouch for in all sorts of organizations and, you know, really thought about leadership a lot. And then in my professional career – uh, especially in my freelance professional career, I don't have to think about leadership very much. Um, I work by myself all the time. I work with editors, but uh, that's, that's about as much as it, of a leader 
as I have, I mostly just lead myself. But so all I could think of when I was thinking about books that made me think about leadership were reading The Babysitter's Club um, when I was a child and just thinking like that I am going to start a prospering business where I will be a leader when I'm 11 years old and I will be an entrepreneur and I will lead. But that didn't happen. But those are the books that make me think about leadership. Okay. Does, ev- does just everyone say that? Yeah. Am I like yeah, a broken a, record? Oh, yeah. There's been a lot of talk about Babysitter's Club in that question <laughs> in the past. So that's, come up, that's come up a lot. Uh, all right, Jody, last, uh, the last question here in the Getting to Know Jody section. Uh, open up the gripe tab for us, Jody. Tell us what it is that you have a gripe about today. Well, I'm a little nervous to say this one because I, as I told you in the email that I waited until the very last minute to send you that I feel like we might disagree on this, and so you still don't know what it is. But I was thinking about something like very specific that annoys me on a regular basis because it makes me have to change my behavior. And so my gripe, especially my professional gripe, is people who refuse to use exclamation points in emails on some type of principle. And I know that, that the inverse of that is probably a lot of people's gripes when people use too many exclamation points. But perhaps you can tell by my voice that I'm someone who enjoys using exclamation points. And I think for some reason the power has been shifted that people who don't use exclamation points are logical, professional, serious people. And people who do use exclamation points are unprofessional, silly people. But if you walked into my office, which is in my home, and said, hello, can I ask you for this folder? Thank you. In such a way, I would think that you were a sociopath and I would not appreciate it. But if you greeted me like a normal person and said, hello, can I get this folder? Thank you so much. That would be a great friendly interaction. And I think there's nothing wrong with being friendly. And yes, of course, I try to limit myself from doing two exclamation points in a row. I try to limit it to two in email, but that is because of a social pressure that has been put on me that I do not appreciate. Do you disagree? I, I, no, I don't disagree. I think that that was a great, I think that was a great gripe tab. Uh, no, I, I'm fine with that. I think people should, you know, I think people should exercise the full range of punctuation that's available in the English language. I like to use, I use a fair amount of exclamation, and uh, I like to use exclamations beside question marks sometimes, and not Definitely. maybe in an email, but certainly in my text messages. I use that all the time. So, yes, I mean, no, nothing I, is I more off-putting than someone who doesn't use exclamation points in text messages. That's free social mm-hmm. reign. You think you know someone, and then you start talking to them, and they don't use exclamation points or any punctuation at all and then you just slide back down from friendship to acquaintance. <laughs> the, theme of this, uh, the theme of this podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for opening that gripes tab. We're going to go to our next segment, which is higher ed, two truths, don't lie. So, uh, Jody, I'm going to provide you with two true, story from higher ed, two true stories from higher ed current events and one lie, and you're going to have to parse out the lie. The theme okay. this time is grading anecdotes. So stories from the world of grading. And uh, these true options came from faculty members via a recent Chronicle of Higher Education piece on odd grading stories. Are you ready to pluck out the lie? I'm nervous and ready. Okay. All right. The first story comes from Alexandra 
Ravenel, who is currently a visiting professor of sociology at Mercy College. And uh, this is from, uh, from your home city there. Uh, professor Ravenel was grading papers on the New York subway when a man approached her and shared that he was also a professor. She asked of what subject. The man responded, Jedi studies. There are currently no offerings in Jedi studies anywhere in New York City. So that is uh, one option, is uh, Jedi studies on the subway. Mm-hmm. The next one comes from Leah Leitzen, who's a professor of art history at Warren Wilson College. Professor Leitzen specializes in pottery and grade subjects every semester while watching the movie Ghost. She says it accurately mimics the intimacy of the process uh, and of creating art and helps her evaluate the authenticity of student work. So uh, Ghost and Pottery uh, from Warren Wilson is your, second, is your second option. And the third story comes from Catherine Moore, who's an assistant professor of psychology at Arcadia University in Pennsylvania. And Professor Moore is a member of the Lady Hoofers, an adult tap dancing group. And Professor Moore uh, once graded papers backstage during the Lady Hoofers annual holiday show. So those are your options. We've got Jedi Studies on the subway. We've got uh, Ghost and uh, Pottery. And we've got the Lady Hoofers uh, adult tap dancing backstage. Which one of those do you think is not a true story from uh, the world of grading? Okay, well, the New York subway thing just sounds highly realistic. That sounds like a calm day on the subway. Um, And I just want the lady hoofers to be real. So I think I'm going to say the pottery ghost grading story is false. Uh, You are correct. That that is right. That is right. Uh, yeah, I um, – Miles, it's because yeah, I know you so well, and I know that you can't resist putting in a little piece of pop culture in your life. <laughs> I just love the I idea read you, that I read you like a babysitter's club book. <laughs> I love the idea that there's a professor out there grading, <laughs> grading pottery while watching ghosts. <laughs> <I just laughs> it couldn't be true. It's just not documented yet. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be honest. I, uh, I really just. I thought that that could be uh, easy to tell, but I was too pleased with myself to uh, to not change it. So. <laughs> I could hear the slight pleased lilt in your voice as you read that one. I was pleased. I, I really was. I was pleased. Yeah. No, you that really happened job. on the subway. Yeah, that was a real thing. Jedi studies, and uh, yeah, the lady hoofers are a real thing. That is true. That is true. And a shout-out to Dean of Students at Arcadia University, Andrew Goretzky, my former supervisor. Wow. Um, yep, yep, real connection there. Maybe he could uh, maybe he could get his tickets to a Lady Hoofers concert uh, performance. That is I'll, the dream. I'll let you know. Okay. All right. So let's move on to our last segment, which is six big leadership questions. So, Jody, let's start with some low-hanging fruit here. What reality star do you think is the best leader and why? You know, I want to give, like, a really exciting answer for this. I think that my mind at least immediately jumps to, you know, very, like, extreme reality stars who, like, crave power. Someone like Mimi Leakes, um, as I know you were, I think, thinking maybe might be some a, a powerful leader in reality TV or – from our favorite show, MTV's The Challenge, someone like Johnny Bananas, who tends to wield a lot of power within the game. But I mm-hmm. think that those kinds of people are people who don't stay on top very long 
or if they mm. do fall fall from the top, they fall hard. So those two examples, Nene Leaks and Johnny Bananas, they're not on the top of their game right now. Um, but I think that, like, when you look at, at other professions, other occupations, other than reality TV, the people who are the best leaders are people who are, like, good supervisors, are good at managing their team and, you know, being supportive when they need to be, but being challenging when they need to be. So that makes me think of more people who are like hosts. So I think like one of the best leaders in the game is Jeff Probst, the host of Survivor. Um, mm. He's always having to think on his feet. He's been in that role for literal decades. Um, and he like actually has, as opposed to someone like Chris Harrison on The Bachelor, he actually has to like work a lot and lead these people and um, be sort of like a manager to them in a game that's constantly moving. And then another person, I think, is someone like Tim Gunn, who is like a literal leader on, uh, on Project Runway. You know, he, he comes in and he guides these people, and he is probably like the most beloved person in reality TV. Um, so, yeah, so I'd say Jeff Probst and Tim Gunn are two, uh, two strong leaders in reality TV. I'm not opposed to the idea of Tim Gunn running for president. That's just how I feel about it. I don't know. But uh, I, think I mean, he I, has a very kind, sweet spirit that might be tramp. He, he, he was just crying on the episode that I, that I, or about to cry on the episode that I saw last night because there was a cheating scandal. Um, With those so, twins? Yes. Have you been watching? Mm-hmm. Uh, my partner's been watching, you know, Erin, she stays on that Project Runway. Oh, yeah. So I don't love when there's drama on Project Runway because it hurts Tim Gunn's feelings. Um, but I, I, would perhaps, I, would pers- I would support him in other leadership roles because he is so supportive. He is so supportive. That is true. All right, Jody, how about, the, how about this one for our next question? What TV show do you think is the most nuanced study of leadership? Mm. Well, I think it's best to break this down into uh, reality and non-reality because mm-hmm. certainly within reality TV, there are a lot of studies of leadership, oftentimes poor leadership. Um, so I think that like the trifecta of reality TV, reality TV leadership is Real Housewives franchise, The Bachelor, and Survivor. And there's three like mm-hmm. very, very different forms of leadership. So like on The Real Housewives, they're all – it's basically a study of, like, leaders and followers, uh, like, nowhere more so than on this Real Housewives franchise. And it's, a, it's mostly a bunch of leaders, like, just, just battling for power all the time, and it's constantly shifting back and forth. But I think the real power in those shows lies with the followers. They're much fewer than them. And, like, Mimi Leakes is no one without Cynthia Bailey, who, is, who was her, like, constant follower. But once Cynthia jumps shit, then really Nene has nothing anymore. So that's definitely one. Uh, the Bachelor, I think, is really interesting for leadership because generally the person who gets chosen to be the Bachelor or the Bachelorette is someone who's, like, very beloved on the season before. And then the second they become the Bachelor or the Bachelorette, people start to hate them because then they start having to lead. And that's just oftentimes not something they're really cut out for, but even if it is something they're cut out for, someone like Rachel last season, like she was a really good leader, but you just can't have the attention on you being a leader for that long without starting to be disliked. 
it's a hard place to be a leader. And then on Survivor, it's more, it's like a little bit like the Real Housewives, like everyone is battling for, to, be, to be a leader, but it's much more underground, which overall I find to be the most fun, uh, the most fun televised leadership in reality TV. Um, and then in non-reality, and I'm not just saying this because we both love it, but it's obviously Game of Thrones. I mean, that is a show that is about leadership. It's about like vying for the throne, um, the entire set, the entire series basically been a study of leadership and how, no offense, but if you're a leader, you're kind of doomed to fail. Um, like for the last, you know, five seasons, they've just been trash talking Ned for being like a good, uh, Ned Stark for being like a good and kind leader. And there was apparently like nothing worse that he could do than that. But then you have Thursday who is an unfair and mean ruler and nobody likes her either. So mm. it's kind of a wait and see for what, what uh what kind of leadership is best now that we're down to john and danny basically it's an unfinished study we're gonna have to wait and see unfinished study spoiler alert for game of thrones uh, <laughs> in case you've been living under a rock if you're not uh, watching live you're not watching darth vader is also luke skywalker's dad just in case people didn't know How uh yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I'm with you 100% on Game of Thrones. I did once do a formal presentation in a couple of different venues talking about uh, James McGregor Burns' uh, uh, transformational leadership spectrum in Game of Thrones. So, yeah, no, I'm no, sure. I'm with you on that. I think I think that's right. Um, all right. Uh, how do you think that people form their opinions of leadership within the world of entertainment? I think that... Uh, I think when we, we prepped a little bit for this and we were, ta- we were mostly talking about kind of like um, competition reality shows and, you know, how people choose who they root for. And I think that like generally those opinions fall on the same lines as your opinions would in the real world. Like if you're someone who roots for an underdog, then you're going to root for the underdog. But if you're someone who, you know, responds well to someone who yields their power very aggressively, then that's who you're going to like in in entertainment or in a TV show. But I think that, like, the biggest invisible leader leaders in entertainment are the editors and the writers. So, like, Mm. you know, you can enjoy – you can say you're rooting for the underdog all you want, but you only know that that person exists, let alone know that they're kind of an underdog figure because that's the story that the editors and the writers tell you. So, I mean, not to be like a jaded cynic who's like, you have these opinions because someone else tells you to have these opinions, but for the most part, you have these opinions because someone else tells you to have these opinions. Is that dark? Look, between that and Leadership Doomed, I'm getting real bummed out. I, mean, I thought we were, <laughs> were going to kind of zip through here and have like, you know, Leadership is hard. That is what I'm telling you. <laughs> All right. Okay, in our prep for this conversation, we discussed the uh, the recent Netflix satire, American Vandal, and that show is primarily poking fun at many parts of the recent wave of true crime interest or things like serial and how to make a murder and the jinx, stuff like that. And our conversation hinged on whether American Vandal is actually making fun of the idea of having to find meaning in true crime. Um, and uh, so my question uh, is, do you think that entertainment needs to have meaning? I do not think that entertainment needs to have meaning. And this is something that I struggle with a lot, even just in writing as a form of entertainment is like, you know, when I'm writing about something important, 
or what I have deemed to be important, is that better than when I'm writing about, say, The Bachelor um, for people to kind of laugh at and have fun with? And I think that entertainment, the purpose of entertainment is, it, is to entertain. And if you're shooting for anything other than that, then, then you're overshooting. But that is not to say that it is not also good when entertainment has meaning. But I think that if you are setting out to, to entertain an audience and to wrap them up in your story, then, then meaning will come with that. Um, so what we were talking about with American Vandal is that, you know, the end, it's been this, you know, running absurd joke, this like insane satire of true crime the whole time. And then at the end, it has this kind of like mushy core. Um, and you I think didn't didn't love that or just thought it would it kind of didn't fit the theme and I thought that it was a continuation of the satire of true crime is is always kind of trying to offer some further meaning and sometimes that is good you know offering like a further look at the criminal justice system is definitely a good thing but a lot of times it's also just an excuse to tell a salacious story and and pretend like we're telling it for any other reason other than like talking about serial killers is really interesting. So I really love the podcast, My Favorite Murder, because it's just doing was it, what it says it's going to do. It's just going to talk about serial killers because people call, think serial killers are interesting, and it's not going to say that it's doing any more than that. Um, but I think, that, I think that entertainment certainly can have meaning, but it doesn't have to because there's meaning in just entertaining people and letting people get away from their real lives a little bit, um, I think is a worthwhile uh, industry on its own. Okay. I, uh, I, I agree. I feel, like that was a, I feel like that was a little bit of a softball question that you did really well with. Thank um, you so much. Yeah, really, really knocked out of the park. And as we discussed this, I think I've uh, come around on the end of American Vandal. I think you're right. Um, Have you? That might be the first yeah. time I've ever brought you around on an entertainment thing. Uh, yeah. But I you don't have I, to say that I did it. You could have come to it on your own. No, no. I think you really convinced me. I think you had a more. Uh, I think you had a more. Uh, a more. Uh, interesting take than I did. I think I was more just like this is saccharine and it doesn't make sense. But that yeah. is how, that's how that would be. So For anyone here. listening who, lo- who enjoys true crime or has listened to a lot of, like, serial making of a murderer or watched the jinx and hasn't watched American Vi- Va- Vandal, the uh, satire of true crime on Netflix, you need to do it right now. Not to be that's confused with vinyl. vinyl. No, Not to be don't, don't watch vinyl. vinyl. The satire of good television. Okay. Uh, Burn. Just really, I have some some strong feelings about Bobby Cannavale. Uh, Okay. All right. So for the uh, next big leadership question, uh, we spend a lot of time in leadership studies discussing power, and the world of entertainment has highly centralized power, which is uh, evidenced by many things, but most recently by the shocking amount of time it took for the Harvey Weinstein scandal to come to light. So, why do you think that power is so centralized in entertainment, and do you see that changing anytime soon? Um, I, do, I do see it changing. I think that um, with the exposure of the Harvey Weinstein um, decades of 
abuse and assault that we can see the change happening right now as um, more and more women and men are speaking out um, honestly and bravely about um, the abuse that is often said are, that is often um, experienced in the entertainment industry. I think that the entertainment industry is so magnified. Um, it feels on its own, not just the power within it, but the power that it yields, that it creates this great divide between the people who have power and the people who don't. And unfortunately, something that often comes with power is the abuse of power, um, which, you know, boils down to abusing the weak. And so what we're seeing from Harvey Weinstein, um, from all of that being exposed, is that with that, with, you know, feeling weak comes fear and silence. And that is how, um, how this went on for so long. And what he banked on was, you know, enough people staying silent, um, that he could get away with this, but with, you know, with enough people coming out, then that silence is broken. And I think it is really, really snowballing right now in a way that hopefully will expand beyond the entertainment industry and into industries that don't have such centralized power where it doesn't seem like such a big deal, but it's still, it's still happening. Um, I think Selma Blair just recently, um, came out openly in the stories about uh, James Toback and said that she was waiting for someone with a bigger name to come out and put their voice and their name to these stories of abuse against him. And then she realized that it just, it had to be her. She was the one who was going to do it. And I think that that is happening more and more um, that people are willing to speak openly in order to kind of help future generations and, so I think with anything, the change is going to be slow, but the fear is being shifted from the weak to the powerful, and I think that that is an important shift that will bring change. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's, let's finish with this. Uh, if there's anything I've learned in doing this podcast, particularly in talking to people in advance of the podcast who are coming on, it's that people really love The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, um, oh, yeah. And I know you've got some thoughts on the subject, which you can find at Jody's blog. These are the best things, which uh, is really hilarious. Uh, so why do you think that that franchise has been such an enduring leader in the world of pop culture? Um, you know, we talked a little bit about this yesterday, and I said that, uh, you know, people are so worried about – not worried, but everyone keeps talking about that with the end of Game of Thrones will come kind of like the end of – a communal watching experience. And I think that that communal watching experience is alive and well with the bachelor franchise. Like you just said, it is an enduring power. People love it. And I think that that is because it's just judging that we can feel good about, you know, people have offered themselves up to be judged and here we are judging them. Um, And also we get to kind of get away with it because the bachelor takes like, the most enduring human impulse there is, which is love, and it makes a contest out of it, uh, Mm. which is just like one of the smartest things that's ever been done on television. And that's why it can continue to prosper. And we get to pretend that we like it because of the romance. But we really like it because, you know, we can put ourselves in Rachel's shoes and say that we, had we been put in that position, that we would have chosen Peter instead of Brian. But you know, 
we would have because we get to just put ourselves in this superior position that we are better than, uh, than this beautiful, smart, accomplished lawyer, Rachel, uh, and we get to do it from the comfort of our own homes. Lucky us. Lucky us. Oh, and I should note, um, speaking of Rachel, that my brother uh, and my new sister-in-law are on their honeymoon in Turks and Caicos, and guess who they ran into last night? Rachel and Brian. Uh, and they said they seemed very happy together. Oh, wow. What great information. Yeah. We got a real yeah. we got a real breaking news alert here from As you uh, can imagine, Jody, yeah. Since my brother is also your acquaintance, um they spoke for quite a long time and exchanged many bits of information, which I will share with you off the air. Uh yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> Luke Walker, an all-time person. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So thanks, everyone, for joining us for the NASA Leadership Podcast, which is presented by the NASA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. And thanks to Jody Walker. Jody, if you wanted to give one under-the-radar television show that people should be watching, you've already handed out American Vandal. Uh, Is there anything else that you think that people aren't talking a lot about that's really good? Oh, my gosh. People ask me this question constantly, and I am always unprepared. Um, what have I, well, just things that I've been watching recently, I, and probably my reason for trying to not feel guilty about enjoying serial killer uh, stories. So I'm currently watching Mindhunter on, uh, on Netflix, which is very entertaining and very much about serial killers. Um, it's not the perfect show, but it is a fun show. But I mean, I want to stay focused on the message and that is to watch American Vandal, which is so good. Stay focused on the message. All those fun, all those fun David Fincher shows out there. Uh, like so Hunter. <laughs> all right. So you can connect with Jody on Twitter at the Jody. That's J O D I Walker. And although Jody will tell you she's not great at Twitter.com, uh, but you know she's out there. There's a picture of a dog. I don't know whose dog it is that she's holding, but there's a picture. Not my dog. Stranger's dog. Stranger's dog. Stranger's Dog, the next big Netflix show. Uh, <laughs> all right, and you can get more information about the uh, Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community on our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash SALead, on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC, and on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter at Miles, that's M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program, so please shoot an email to NASPA Leader Podcast at gmail.com. Jody, thanks so much. Thank you, Miles.